1: So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1 800 Discover to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com/slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I
0: want people to hear my voice and just forget their
1: troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know
0: like this. I ain't no
1: spy skill. Like never before.
0: That's my daughter. That's my Amy.
1: Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters, May 17th. Friends and neighbors all aboard, we want the train to run on time. My name is Ben.
2: We are uh, going off the rails on a train of the dead. And my
1: name is Noel, and this is Ridiculous History. That's right. That's right, Noel. Uh, we are looking into something relatively morbid today. I would say even more so morbid than ridiculous. We're looking at a very particular railway in London, That's right. From 1854 to
2: 1941, the London Necropolis Railway was operational. Uh, it took mourners and their dearly departed on a 40-minute, 23-mile ride to a very specific cemetery outside of London Town.
1: Yes, the Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey, which at the time, was the largest cemetery in the world, or the largest acknowledged. And it came about uh, through the efforts of something known as the London Necropolis Company. Uh, they were established in 1852 by an act of parliament because, it turns out, this wasn't just some grisly, macabre lark There wasn't, you know, some creepy like Adams Family type Gomez figure who wanted to cart dead people around. London was in the grips of a crisis, a burial crisis.
2: Yeah, that's right. It was actually a twofold problem because around about the mid 19th century, the cemeteries in London proper were just absurdly overcrowded because of a booming population that more than doubled, uh, from the early 1800s to the mid 1800s. Um, not to mention that there was a pretty serious cholera outbreak. Uh, so Londoners were burying in the neighborhood
1: of 50,000 dead. Every year before the cholera epidemic, the cemeteries were so overcrowded that it was impossible to find a new grave without running into an older grave. So when the cholera epidemic hit in 1848 and killed almost 15,000 people from cholera alone, the bodies were were left stacked like cordwood, waiting to be buried, and people were exhuming even recent graves to make room for new corpses. Yeah,
2: there's a fantastic article from the BBC by Amanda Regueri, and she says that one way of dealing with this, was pretty grisly, was actually digging up bodies and cremating them uh, under cover of night. And the only way that you could escape this potential fate uh, of your loved ones was if you had all the money. (laughs)
1: just all the money. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we are going to encounter some very strange issues of class and social hierarchy here. So as the city falls into this crisis, they're trying to figure out how to address it. And uh, there were a couple of different ideas that were – tossed around of varying degrees of plausibility, but the one that won out was the idea of transporting, uh, the newly deceased, the, you know, the recently passed on, uh, from London proper to an area outside of it. That would be Brookwood Cemetery or the London Necropolis. As Noel mentioned, uh, this isn't too far out of town, like 37 kilometers or so. Yes, that's exactly right. 23 miles or 37 kilometers outside of London.
2: And this was all done in tandem. The railway was built at the same time as the Brookwood Cemetery to deal with this overcrowding because, you know, the folks that uh, came up with this idea thought this would be a pretty elegant solution because it was not very efficient to take a horse horse-drawn hearse with a single body 30 kilometers out of town. That would just be uh, a prohibitively long trip and mm. just, you know, you, how would you even accommodate all the people that wanted to go along for the procession? And the train was sort of a combination of that where you could have many people going at predetermined times each day that this train made this journey, um, and it was kind of an all-encompassing, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of a package deal, right? Yeah, it was the total package. Because not only did the mourners... Get transportation. There were even um, snacks provided. Uh, You could have these homemade sandwiches and things called fairy cakes, which are sort of the English equivalent of cupcakes.
1: Yeah, specifically ham sandwiches. And then take the same train back returning to London mid-afternoon at 3.30 p.m., This was an efficacious solution, but as you might imagine, folks, it was a very controversial one for a number of reasons. The Bishop of London testified on the proposal before a House of Commons select committee in 1842, and he said – I consider it improper. At present, we are not sufficiently habituated to that mode of traveling not to consider the hurry and bustle connected with it as inconsistent with the solemnity of a Christian funeral. So he thought, you know, it was disrespectful to the dead and not blasphemous, but not proper uh, in terms of the Christian religion do you think he was it was because
2: of the noise mm. you know the the noisy engines and just the nature of traveling by train the fact that it was kind of considered newer technology maybe what I wonder what his beef was it's hard to tell mm. uh, specifically from that quote, don't you think?
1: Yeah yeah I think he I think you're on the right track, though, or the right rail, (laughs) because he did seem to feel that the technology was impinging upon the traditions, the rituals of burial. And when we were looking into this earlier, I was wondering if it would be comparable to something like having someone Skype in at a funeral. Today, like that, would be controversial to some people, right?
2: That's a really good parallel, Ben. I, I kind of that's a really good way to to look at it, and I think we've kind of hit on what this bishop's problem really was. But you know, the company that put all this together really did try to make it a solemn and uh, comforting experience. The folks on the train were treated to some quite resplendent views, uh, including Westminster, Hampton Court. And Richmond Park. And, you know, typically people that plan train routes are looking for the most efficient path, mm-hmm. not necessarily the most scenic.
1: Um, but this was a completely different animal, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. There's There's a book on this called The Brookwood Necropolis Railway by an author named John M. Clark. And in there, he details some of the amenities that were available to the living And one of the other controversies that may be surprising for us today, which is that in addition to concerns about religious traditions, there were class concerns. After you had a relative or a loved one pass on, you could buy them a ticket for their coffin to go to Brookwood Cemetery, but you could buy one of three types of tickets. And we had the prices attached for this travel, right? Like, uh, the fancy one, first class, that would be a pound, is that correct? Yeah, it was a pound, and it was
2: divided up, you know, you had to pay for the living and the dead as well.
1: Uh, that makes sense. So live passengers were charged six shillings, I believe, for first class, so it was less expensive to transport the living. Probably because of space, to be honest with you. Uh, we know it was five shillings for the dead in second class, uh, a little over two shillings in third class. And we did some of the math here, so in 1854, uh, uh, one British pound from 1854 today would be about 86 pounds. So this was not an insignificant expense, this was still uh, a pretty pricey endeavor.
2: Yeah, funerals even to this day totally still are. Uh, I found a review of a BBC Four Extra radio documentary about the uh, the necropolis that has some interesting references to the signage uh, one might have seen um, laying out these these different classes and prices, and it's referred to here as uh, corpses artisan five shillings, corpses pauper two shillings, and six pence. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's some pretty
1: strong language, right? Popper. That's what they call third class.
2: Popper right? and artisan.
1: I guess that would be like the mercantile class. Premium? I don't know. <laughs> artisan.
2: I always think of artisan as like artisanal
1: cheeses, Right, right. Uh, especially, you know, if you're in a fancy boutique of some sort, we don't usually associate the phrase artisan or artisanal with corpses. I guess you could have an artisan artisanal coffin though right like a handmade uh, bes- bespoke coffin yeah, yeah totally you absolutely could we're just not used to thinking of actual human remains that way and I'm glad that it's weird in this day and age uh, because isn't death supposed to be the great equalizer So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I
0: ever been.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you?
0: Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street,
1: Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many and more of everything. Limited time special offers wait at AvalonWaterways.com.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This leads us to one of the concerns that baffled us, the social class idea. One of the worries that people had was that different social classes might mix For that reason, there were separate carriages for each class and this was the custom uh, at the time. And so even though, you know, a titan of banking and a very poor family could ride the same train and arrive at the same station, they would be segregated. And the cemetery itself, however, was not divided by class or status. It was divided by religion. Yeah, you know, once you're in the ground, we're all equal, right? (laughs) Not
2: if you're Anglican. They had their own spot. That's true, but at the same time, you could have that titan of industry buried next to a pauper that was in his same religion, um, unless you were such a titan of industry that you could afford a private plot somewhere like Highgate Cemetery, which was very exclusive and very expensive.
1: And today in... 2018, as Noel and our super producer Casey Pegram and I record this, people in the West tend to keep death as far away from us as possible, right? But at the time, especially when this city is literally getting crowded with corpses, people are much more intimately familiar with the concept of mortality. And during its peak, London's Necropolis Railway transported more than 2,000 corpses per year. Uh, That's, you know, if we count the live mourners, then the number of bodies reaches the tens of thousands. This was a very successful thing. Also, there were bars. Did you find that too?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, the the uh, the concessions were licensed to serve alcohol and pints. So, you know, if you opted to do that instead of a nice lemonade and a cupcake or a fairy cake, as it were, you could,
1: uh, you know, get smashed. Which, you know, happens sometimes at wakes and, and other funereal rites. For sure. Um, it's interesting that John Clark, who wrote the book
2: you mentioned, um, the Brookwood Necropolis Railway, he's, overall, he's, a, he's just a railroad historian. Um, he seemed to think that this was pretty forward thinking. Uh, he referred to it as pioneering, revolutionary, and quoted as saying, as far as I know, it was the first use of the railway for a dedicated service from one private station directly into a cemetery. cemetery. Cemetery at the other end. And a man by the name of George Nash wrote an essay called Pomp and Circumstance, Archaeology, Modernity and the Corporatization of Death. He notes that discretion was very important because the biggest railway station in London at the time was Waterloo Station, and the York Street station was built just far enough from that station. York Street was where you'd get on to catch the Necropolis train. Uh, it was just far enough away to be separated from normal commuters in their day-to-day uh, route, so it, it was all about kind of segmenting that while also making it accessible. And speaking of being pioneering in terms of the technology these trains had to be specially outfitted to store these coffins they had leather straps um and in fact parliament mandated that the fares be capped so it was even though it was a little pricey the you know poor people uh, and rich people alike
1: couldn't be gouged right yeah these were known as Hearse vans and the Necropolis Company had the locomotives and passenger carriages on loan, but it owned the hearse vans outright. In the beginning, each van had twelve partitions in two rows of six. Each of those spots could handle one coffin. And the later vans had uh, around fourteen coffins, I guess, per van. Uh, They were fitted with these partitions to divide first, second and third class coffins because God forbid that the poor and uh, the wealthy (laughs) ride the same train even as remains. And they continued to evolve these hearse vans. It it was an example of – I don't want to say bleeding edge technology, but it was an example of ingenuity because – It became a matter of numbers. They are literally, you know, moving bodies and calculating how much they make per unit.
2: And location was a big part of it, too. Um, In that BBC article uh, called The Passenger Train Created to Carry the Dead, author Amanda Reggeri mentions that Waterloo had these railway arches that were um, able to temporarily store these corpses. Uh, So there was – I'm going to go through the way she describes it in the article. Um, uh, She says, quote, most families had their loved ones picked up by a horse-drawn hearse. The funeral procession would end at the station. There, the coffins would be lifted into Elevators that would carry them up to the platform level and onto the train. And those railway arches offered temporary storage if needed.
1: And here we see another controversial point. So we had social class, right? And we had the solemnity of religion. Uh, Both were seen as very valid points at the time. The third issue was that. According to Clark, most people aspired to be buried near where they lived and worked. So the idea of burying someone miles away from central London was a large and significant choice to make.
2: Yeah, it was a tough pill to swallow. But again, we know that there just wasn't space. So I'm not sure how best to to handle that. This seemed like a pretty uh, elegant solution. Um, one final taboo that we haven't even mentioned this kind of staring us right in the face is this idea of the living occupying the same vehicles as the dead. I mean, there was concern of things like odors uh, from the dead and potential transmission of uh, of diseases even. Mm-hmm. And so that was something to be considered as well. Um, and like you said, Ben, it, it was seemingly successful with the amount of dead and mourners that were transported on this rail, but it didn't quite Take off in the way that the uh, the creators hoped it would. Right. Clark says this in his book, the original aims of the company to effectively offer economic and sanitary burial well beyond the city limits forever. If necessary, that could have been achieved. But the public having the choice of burial place decided otherwise. And it all came down to that issue of not wanting to be buried so far away from their home base, 30 miles outside of town. That was a stretch for a lot of people.
1: And two other events influenced the fall of the Necropolis train. One, which we cannot emphasize enough, was the introduction of the motorized hearse in 1909. Uh, This started out slowly, but by the 1920s, it became more popular than the horse-drawn hearse, which, again, as as we point out, is pretty expensive, and the train itself, which had its own sort of issues of propriety versus efficiency. It's true. And there was also that issue of timing because, as we
2: know, the trains run on a very specific schedule and um, a lot of folks couldn't take off work to meet these. So unless the funeral or even, you know, wanting to go visit a loved one – took place on a Sunday. You have to take off work. And as this started to wane in popularity, which did happen, the frequency of these runs started to dwindle. But the true death knell uh, for this particular railway came in
1: 1941 during World War II. The London terminus of the Necropolis train was damaged by a German V-2 rocket. And when this damage occurred uh, during the... London Blitz, there had already been a couple of near misses, and the train had already been kind of winding down the frequency of trips. And in addition to that, the trips it did have scheduled were occasionally canceled because there was enemy action somewhere else on the rail line. So in April of 1941, in one of the last major air raids on London, bombs Repeatedly fell on the Waterloo area and the cars or what's called rolling stock in the train world. Uh, The cars were burned. The railway arch that uh, Noel mentioned connecting the main line was damaged. The building itself was okay, but again – the cars were on fire.
2: Yeah, it caused more than 2,000 fires, as it turns out. And um, in the neighborhood of a 1,000 people lost their lives in that blitz. Um, and, you know, faced with the choice of rebuilding or just walking away, the company decided to do the latter and just
1: ditch it. And so there ends the strange story of London's train of the dead. But... If you want to check it out, I believe that you can still see remnants of the station today, right? It's true. It's going to be a weird date, but if you want to take somebody, just let them know what you're getting into.
2: And the facade of the building is, is almost the same, exactly the same as it was, uh, minus the signage um, identifying it as the London Necropolis Railway.
1: And I have to ask, Noel... It's, it's always a tricky thing for us to put ourselves in the position of someone in the past, but it, I, I want to know your take. If you were conducting a funeral for a loved one in this day and age, would you take the train? Does it Do any of their concerns seem strange or off-putting to you in the modern day? I mean, it's cliche to say, but it
2: was a different time then. <laughs> my modern mind just can't wrap itself around this notion, you know. Plus, funerals give me the the creeps anyway. I'm not a fan. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Who, who is? Who is? I mean, Harold from Harold the Ma- Ma-
1: <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of of the of the same mind. It's just if we existed back then, I keep having some voice in my head of of some you know, hypothetical relatives saying, I can't believe you're putting our darling Esmeralda in the ground with Anglicans or something like that, you know? Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard or a charming cobblestone village sound to you?
0: Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming
1: cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities.
0: Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One
1: with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: I say that overall, this was a smart solution and was a crucial one for the time in which it existed, and this is only scratching the surface of strange funeral and burial customs around the world.
2: Yeah, for a deeper dive, check out John Clark's book on the Brookwood Necropolis Railway, or the essay from George Nash, Pomp and Circumstance, Archaeology, Modernity, and the Corporatization of Death, uh, both of which you can find uh, with
1: a cursory Google search. And on that note, we would like to hear from you. What are some do, of the strange... Do you... Oh. do you hear that? Yeah, but I was going to ignore it. You we were really trying to power through that ending, weren't you? I, I thought if we sewed it up quickly. It's I... time, gentlemen. Jonathan Strickland, the Quister. It is I, the Quister, returned at last to plague you with
4: questions about fact and fiction. Do you have an English accent today? S- some Sometimes. Okay. Some, it uh, comes and goes. I've, I've been in this room a really long time, guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. How long have you been here? Like,
4: Pretty sure it's been weeks. I, so I, you know, I hide here, mm-hmm. ready to spring at a moment's notice, but you guys recorded in the other studio, like across the way, the last couple of times. And uh, I mean, the light was on. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to come in when the light's on, right? So I just had to keep waiting until you came back in here. So, uh, that, but that is beside the point. Now you will quake in fear as you face the Quister, the most cringeworthy segment at all of podcasting. Now, you were talking about James K. Polk, and so my. Dude, no, 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 we did what? that one already.
1: Like weeks did, ago. What? With, yeah.
4: In the other studio, right? I knew it. I knew it, guys. <laughs> I hid here uh-huh. to give you the perfect. What did you talk about today?
2: was other dead stuff. It might work. Uh, We talked about the uh, the train of the dead in uh, the UK.
4: Still thematically irrelevant. So I will pose to you a query. And as you know, I always come up with rules of arbitrary nature for every single query I pose to you. Yes, yes. And so you must, before asking me any questions about the scenario, which I shall lay so graciously before your feet, Mm -hmm. the phrase... Woo spooky. Ooh spooky. <laughs> spooky. No nope, in on it. <laughs> okay. Alright. My eyes are it. on you. And then trust me, if you don't give me a sincere ooh, spooky, you will not like what you get.
1: So don't phone it in. Do
4: not by any means phone it in. I mean put your back into it. I wanna <laughs> I wanna see spooky waves of spookiness mm-hmm. from you. Before you ask me a question, or I, I will not give you an answer.
1: Well, Quister, uh, you have set the rules, yes. and I believe we have three minutes, That right? is correct.
4: Three minutes to ask me any questions before you tell me whether or not the scenario I give you is true or fiction. Mm. Now, I will tell you when to start the timer. This one's a bit of a long one, so when I,
1: I tell you, then you hit Go. That's very, you know, for a villain, that is tremendously courteous. I
4: just, I find, I find that it, that it won't be as, as, as wonderful a victory. I won't be able to savor it if I cheat you of some of your precious, ooh, spooky time. So here we are. Shakespeare, you familiar with him? Mm, yeah. Wrote a few plays? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he was buried. He, first of all, spoiler alert, he's dead. Oh. He was buried in the cemetery adjacent to the Church of the Holy Trinity in Stratford-upon-Avon. But in 1726, his bones were moved from that site to Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey. Shortly thereafter, the abbey reportedly was the site of several misfortunes, and the cause was attributed to a curse Shakespeare had laid upon his own grave, and the bones were thus dug back up and replaced in his original grave at Stratford-upon-Avon. A statue of Shakespeare was erected in 1741 in Westminster Abbey, and that just had to do. Start. Uh,
1: okay. Okay. I, I'm I'm gonna say, yeah, uh, sh- I don't know, man. I I remember reading some stuff about Shakespeare posthumously.
2: Well, I remember. I definitely remember the epitaph. It was it was kind of like a creepy little poem, a bit of a spooky
4: poem. Like, uh, yeah, uh, sp- yeah, do oh, spooky, Mister. Yes? What yeah.
2: was the epitaph ah. uh, that, that that Shakespeare had uh, inscribed on his and
4: tomb? Excellent question, Noel. Very well, good good. Spooky too. Here you go. Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones.
1: That sounds like
2: Shakespeare. Oh, for sure. That definitely rings true. I remember that from school. <laughs> um, okay, but. I've got,
1: I've got one. I've got one. What you got? Ooh, <laughs> spooky. Passable, Ben. Go ahead. I resent you so much. Okay. All right. Fine. Uh, Quister, is, is it possible that some of this is true and some is not?
4: Sure. It's also possible that I have a golden Cadillac at home. I don't see what the point of that is. Do you mean do I make something out of whole cloth or could there be elements of truth woven into a lie? The latter. Oh. Uh, yeah. That I, I sounds like me. It could happen.
2: OK. I'm thinking yes, because I definitely remember that epitaph. That sounds completely accurate. Uh, it seems like something that would have happened, the whole Westminster mm. Abbey thing. What do you think,
1: Ben? I'm, I'm going with true. Westminster Abbey is uh, is historically a place for the internment of very significant people. Poet's that's Corner just, is a thing. That's yeah, a, that is that's a, a real thing. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Uh, I'm going to go with true. All right, let's go with it. Should we lock it in? Let's lock it in. True. True. <laughs>
4: I win! No! I win! Your streak of victories has come to an end. Your, your streak, two is a streak here in Atlanta, as it <laughs> turns out. The people who aren't familiar with Atlanta sports, two's a streak. I have claimed victory from the jaws of defeat. You were bamboozled. So here's the real story. Uh, his body was buried at Stratford-upon-Avon. That is, in fact, his epitaph on his gravestone. He mm-hmm. was never moved, although in the 18th century there was a fellow named John Rich who was the a, a, a theater manager in London, very, very influential man, who actually suggested that they move Shakespeare's bones to Westminster Abbey. And the Abbey said, nah, we're cool. Uh, so Shakespeare's statue is there, mm-hmm. but Shakespeare's bones are still at Stratford-upon-Avon. You can find other dead poets – Over at Westminster Abbey, including Chaucer, Hmm. Spencer, uh, many others all over in that corner. Uh, I remember jumping up and down on Thomas Hardy's grave myself.
2: Took Uh, a corner like where you hide in the podcast studio?
4: I mean, no, because that's a corner. The Poets' Corner is a corner on the ground and I always stay in the (laughs) the one in the upper right part of the
1: ceiling. That was you.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to need to replace some tiles.
1: Yeah. Well, also, you know, you can't blame a guy because God knows it's got to be tough to keep your grip up there. Mm -hmm. But fair is fair. And because you finally won this round, Jonathan, in your incarnation as the Quizzer, Noel, Casey, and I must award you this badge that says winner.
4: I have literally never been this happy.
1: Jonathan, are you you, you crying? Shut up. You're crying. (laughs) So what this means, I think, is that you might have won the battle, old nemesis, but you have not won the war. No, I will
4: return, and I will quiz you yet again and again and again for all eternity.
2: But until that time comes, I think we're going to have to go drown our sorrows, uh elsewhere um that's gonna be it for today's episode of ridiculous history i I am admittedly quite bummed i Uh, thought we had it yeah it, it it felt it felt right but now it feels so wrong
1: i have never been so upset about getting a badge that says winner back not even in, in, like, fourth grade when that stuff really mattered.
2: Well, hey, folks, if you want to write us uh, some consolations and, and help us to feel better about ourselves, please do so. Please do so. We need it. We need it. Send it to ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. You can also console us on social media, which uh, we are Ridiculous History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
1: Uh, we would, of course, like to thank uh, Lori L. Dove, her fantastic article, London Had a Train for the Dead, uh, provided some inspiration for this episode. Our super producer, Casey Pegram, uh, along with Alex Williams,
2: who composed our theme. And begrudging thanks to Jonathan the Quister Strickland for tormenting us <laughs> you, you yet guys, again.
4: You, you guys are going to be in this studio again next time, right? Because, I mean, like, I've got snacks up there. You
1: know and- what? I don't know right now. I don't just, I think that Noel and I uh, need need a break. We need some time to heal. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's fair. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, folks. And let, let us know if you would have been fooled by that Shakespeare thing. We'll see you next time.